Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Asia recently pushing sanctions against North Korea with our Asian allies. And China-Australia relations are in the spotlight again. Welcome to Foreign Edition. I'm Mary Kissel with the Wall Street Journal editorial board here on a sunny summer day in New York City. And I'm joined by my friend and colleague, editorial board member Hugo Restall, who is at an undisclosed location in Asia Pacific. I'm imagining him uh, sitting on the veranda at Raffles Hotel in Singapore. Maybe he's enjoying a Singapore sling. We don't know. Hello, Hugo. Welcome to the program. Hey, Mary. It's great to be with you again. So Secretary of State Pompeo attended the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Conference for the first time as the United States' top diplomat. And he's urging enforcement of U.N. sanctions against North Korea. Lots to talk about here. A member of the North Korean delegation also delivering a letter from dictator Kim Jong-un for President Trump to the U.S. delegation at that conference. But let's start at the beginning, Hugo. Uh, What exactly was Pompeo asking of our allies? Aren't they all enforcing sanctions against North Korea? (laughs) Uh, The enforcement of the sanctions has never been uh, complete and and perfect. Previously, earlier in the year, uh, the enforcement was tightening. But since the June 12th summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un in Singapore, uh, our allies and our adversaries have felt it uh, no longer the need to uh, enforce those sanctions quite so rigorously. And so the North has been able to sell its uh, coal and other natural resources um, and buy the essentials that it needs for its economy. So these, these sanctions have become become quite porous. Quite porous. So essentially, um, North Korea gives a little bit. Uh, they have returned the remains of some U.S. Um, soldiers, fallen soldiers from the Korean War. Not all of them, of course, just a few. Um, and so they look like good guys and that they're doing something for us. And now they want us to do something in return? Right. So the June 12th uh, agreement in Singapore had very little specifics. It was mostly a a vague promise to pursue denuclearization. But a couple specifics that it did have or or emerged at that meeting um, were that North Korea would uh, return remains of U.S. servicemen and it would dismantle a uh, missile test stand. And uh, the North Koreans, I think the last time we talked about this issue, they had not followed through on those promises. Now they have. And of course, now they want to be paid. They want uh, some sort of concession from the U.S. Um, You know, they have not done anything concrete on denuclearization, which was the main point of the agreement. But from their point of view, uh, they always get paid for for doing little things. And uh, so the U.S. should now be relaxing the sanctions, not tightening them. And that that was the gist of foreign ministers uh, remarks at the summit. And uh, he's complaining that the U.S. is now uh, violating uh, the the agreement in Singapore 
while the U.S. is complaining that North is uh, is not moving towards denuclearization. So there's certain irony here of of both sides complaining that they're not getting what they expected from this agreement when there was very little of substance in the agreement itself. Yeah, I, I noticed the administration is not talking a lot about CVID, uh, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. And we have a, a terrific editorial that's up on wsj.com forward slash opinion. I'd recommend it to everyone. It's titled North Korea's Complaint. And it sets out um, not not just the, the breaking of sanctions, but uh, also, Hugo, the, the language that was used here, uh, simultaneous actions and phase steps, that's a quote that was in this June agreement. I mean, by that me- measure, <laughs> um, phased steps, uh, does North Korea have a point here that they've upheld their end of the bargain? Well, I, I would say no. But uh, from their point of view, perhaps, I mean, uh, they expect that they will get what they've gotten from previous agreements, which is uh, uh, bribes and, and extortion payments in order to freeze their their program. And they have no intention of following through on denuclearization. So uh, from their point of view, yes, it's situation normal. Why isn't the U.S. Uh, relaxing the sanctions? So, uh, you know, from their point of view, it's why the, the U.S. made a bad deal. Uh, didn't insist <laughs> on uh, specifics. So, uh, you know, why aren't you paying up? Yeah, well, I was reading the transcript um, of the press conference, the sort of impromptu press conference that Secretary Pompeo held on his way back to the United States from that ASEAN conference. And he was asked several times um, about the denuclearization efforts and how it was going. And he came off as kind of tetchy, Hugo. Uh, didn't really want to answer the questions. Um, I'm wondering what happened to the urgency here, because Pompeo said earlier this year, uh, prior to taking the job as Secretary of State, that North Korea was in a range of only a few months of putting the U.S. mainland, what he called, at risk. And now we're into August. Well, golly, um, are are, are they not putting the U.S. mainland at risk anymore? Um, How do we suddenly have all of this time to negotiate with them? Right. So the U.S. officials are bending over backwards to uh, put the, the best face on this situation. Uh, John Bolton was on a Sunday show on Fox saying that uh, the Trump administration is is holding a master class in holding the door open for the North Koreans. Uh, so it's uh, <laughs> our national that's, security that's advisor. Nice way of, of putting it. Yeah. Uh, Bolton is known to be a North Korea hawk. So I'm sure this really uh, sticks in his craw having to defend what's going on. But, you know, I think the the bottom line is that the Trump administration probably doesn't want to uh, go toe to toe with North Korea again before the midterm elections. Um, You know, the North Koreans could stage provocations, um, you know, attack the South, uh, shell an island or sink a a ship. And uh, all things they've done in the past, by the way, all things they've done. in the past. So that 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 would be their standard procedure when uh, they're not getting what they want. So, you know, I think the U.S. has to abandon this this approach at some point. Uh, the question is is timing. And as you say, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, there was a U.N. report that was submitted to the Security Council on Friday, which detailed all the problems. Um, the North is continuing to build missiles uh, and missile parts at various facilities. It's continuing to uh, refine nuclear material. It needs to build uh, warheads. 
Um, and the the trade in uh, coal and other material at sea uh, continues. You know, North Korean ships are docking at sea with with other vessels and uh, transferring the goods and then uh, and then returning to their ports. So it, it's um, you know it, it's becoming very clear that none of the measures um, needed to push North Korea to uh, to make a big concession and, and agree <laughs> yeah. to complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization are are holding up. So, uh, yeah, it's not it's, working. It's really putting lipstick on a pig at it, this point. Yeah, it's just not working, um, to put it bluntly. Um, but, Hugo, let's step back from North Korea for a second and just talk about Pompeo at the ASEAN meeting. Um, there have been secretaries of state in the past that have skipped these kinds of gatherings. Uh, I think it's positive that Pompeo showed up at the very minimum and he wasn't just in Singapore, was he? He also uh, took some uh, time to meet with countries around the Mekong Delta region. There were some announcements there. Um, what was notable there, Hugo, to you? What what stuck out? Well, uh, Pompeo is uh, gave a, a fairly important speech last week about the Indo-Pacific um, and the U.S. intention to offer more funding for infrastructure along with its allies um, to counter the Chinese Silk Road Initiative, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, it's also known as, by which it's it's uh, lending uh, more than a trillion dollars in the, in the region to build ports, railways, airports. Um, and the U.S. has been highly critical of China's approach, calling it debt diplomacy, because the uh, high debt that these countries incur then makes them beholden to Beijing, and when they can't pay it off, they have to, uh, you know, cede control over these projects to Chinese companies. And so the U.S. Um, is now stepping up uh, with money to uh, address the region's infrastructure shortfalls, uh, which is positive. But the money isn't quite there yet. I mean, the, the amount that Pompeo talked about is uh, just 113 million dollars. There's a promise of possibly another $6 billion if a, uh, a bill makes it through Congress. Um, and then other countries like Australia and Japan would, would presumably stump up money as well. So uh, it's, it's a start, and it's, it's positive. But at, at this point, it's, it's um, really way too small to um, say at this point that uh, the U.S. Is, is really challenging the, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Well, I, did, I did think it was positive that uh, Pompeo met with his counterparts from India, Australia, and Japan, uh, the three uh, serious, important, major, whatever word you want to call it, democracies in the region that together encircle China. And there does seem to be an effort on behalf of this State Department to forge closer ties between those three nations and with the United States. I mean, this has been going on for years, Hugo. I remember uh, the initiatives that the George W. Bush administration was making, uh, very similar idea that they share our values, they share our concerns about Beijing and Beijing's march to its near abroad. Hey, let's get them all together in a room and talk and see if we can cooperate more. Um, that effort seems to be continuing. Right. I mean, that's the quad idea of the four countries, but uh, India is still not really on board. Um, so that that is the focus of trying to um, bring them into the this grouping. 
Um, but it's also very positive that Pompeo was in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia um, talking to leaders there. I mean, the, these are things that, um, you know, the, the Bush and Obama administrations neglected to a certain extent. And, uh, you know, with the recent election of a new government in Malaysia, the opposition winning, um, they are re-examining their ties with China and the, and the projects that China was financing there. So there's a lot of potential um, for bringing Malaysia uh, closer as a closer partner of the U.S. Well, that'd be good news. We're talking about Mike Pompeo, North Korea, and we're turning to one of our favorite countries next. You're listening to Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Drive time. Gym time. Anytime. Podcasts from the Wall Street Journal. Check out all our shows at wsj.com slash podcasts. That's wsj.com slash podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. Mary Kissel in New York. Hugo Restall, somewhere out there in Asia Pacific. And we are turning to one of my favorite countries, Australia, Great continental democracy. Love them down there. There's a new book yeah. out from Australian former, former Australian foreign minister Bob Carr. Uh, it's raising questions again about Canberra's relationship with Beijing. Hugo, the book is called Run for Your Life. What's the premise here? Well, Bob Carr has um, made a new career for himself after government of essentially becoming a, a shill for Beijing. Um, and he is now uh, peddling this line that uh, there's an anti-China panic in Australia. <laughs> and uh, the anti-China Taliban, of, made up of uh, journalists and academics, are, are coming after him and anyone who's friendly towards Beijing. Um, what's actually happened is that uh, after Australia discovered that Chinese businessmen were funneling uh, donations from United Front organizations under the Communist Party, to uh, China, uh, Australian politicians who were then taking the Chinese line on, on various foreign policy issues. Uh, Australia has now amended the laws on, uh, on contributions to uh, politicians so that foreigners are not allowed to, uh, to give donations anymore, something that was long overdue and most countries already do. Um, and so, uh, you know, Australia is looking at its relations with, with China and the influence campaigns that uh, Chinese uh, uh, agents essentially are, are conducting within Australia. And, uh, so and they're this numerous. Is, this is going to be a, a major battle. Yeah, it, it, as, it, as it well should be. Um, although, of course, Bob Carr is on the wrong side of it, former Labor uh, Foreign Minister, I might add. Um, Hugo, just just for listeners out there who haven't been following this, when you talk about um, United Front activities in Australia, United Front, of course, pushes the Communist Party's goals abroad. 
Um, it, let's let's just go through a few of these. Um, you you mentioned uh, politicians taking Chinese money. I'll just name one guy, Labor Senator Sam Dastyari, who accepted money from Chinese sources to settle his personal debts. <laughs> That's just one of them. And you got the universities and uh, the uh, pro-Beijing activities on campus, uh, effectively right. trying to intimidate people who want to speak honestly about the Communist Party. I mean, am I am I missing uh, other things here, Hugo? Add to the list. No, no, that's... Uh, well, Bob Carr himself runs an institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, um, which has been funded by some of these uh, Chinese tycoons who were giving money to Sam Dostyari and other politicians. Um, but as you say, there are now Chinese uh, front organizations on Australian campuses um, which intimidate Chinese students there um, from speaking their mind in class. And a professor um, uh, at Macquarie University, Kevin Carrico, has uh, pushed back against uh, this and tried to protect his students. And uh, the Chinese media has gone after him and called him uh, an anti-China zealot. Um, and, uh, you know, Bob Carr is, is talking about, you know, Macar- McCarthyism coming to Australia. Uh, there's a very good article by Kevin Carrico in the South uh, Sydney Morning Herald um, in the last few days, which I recommend uh, taking a look at, talking about how he was, uh, how he's been demonized by the Chinese media. Um, there's also a very important article by Ross Garneau, a former uh, reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald, um, who now works for the Australian government, um, talking about the prevalence of the United Front organizations in Australia. And uh, he, he describes how they're actually now under the umbrella of the, of the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, a uh, department known as the Liaison Department, um, which uh, conducts influence operations in, in enemy territory. Um, so... You know, this is now uh, a major topic of conversation uh, within the Australian uh, political sphere. And Bob Carr is, um, you know, way out on on one wing. Um, I would say both parties now are are quite alarmed by it and uh, and are are, it's a bipartisan effort um, with Bob Carr being a extreme outlier in in the sort of pro-China camp. Well, thank God. Um, and just to give listeners a sense here of the distances involved, I just looked this up. It takes 12 hours to fly from Sydney to Beijing. Just to give you a sense of the distance that China's influence has traveled. We're not talking about Hong Kong, a territory right on China's doorstep. Uh, we're not talking about Macau. We're not talking about Nepal. We're not talking about a country that borders China. We're talking about a country that's a 12-hour flight away. Hugo. Right. Um, but Australia, yeah, Australia really is the canary in the, the coal mine for a few reasons. One is, you know, it's, it's traditionally been such a staunch U.S. ally. But, um, you know, it's been vulnerable, A, because it, it hadn't uh, addressed these, these laws on contributions. These loopholes. So it was a soft target. Right. But it's also highly dependent economically on China. Um, it exports a lot of iron ore and other minerals to uh, to China. So economically, it's it's uh, you know people are afraid that if if they anger Beijing, that uh, there might be significant repercussions. And also, its publicly funded universities are highly dependent on uh, the tuition from Chinese students. And so those universities don't want to rock the boat um, because if Chinese the flow of Chinese students was interrupted. 
there would be a major funding crash within the uh, Australian educational system. No, it's all kind of pathetic, isn't it, Hugo? Because there is such thing as a budget, and these universities could control their budget better. Um, We're having that debate here in the United States, but that's a different uh, area altogether. We'll leave that for the Potomac Watch podcast. Um, But yet, yet it's another argument for opening up new markets and for opening up markets in particular to U.S. allies like Australia. Now, we have a U.S.-Australia free trade agreement that was done under the George W. Bush administration. But the Trans-Pacific Partnership, not to harp on it, but that was an effort to uh, bind together the non-Chinese trading company, ch- countries of Asia-Pacific. And President Trump ran against it, said he could uh, was a bad deal, quote-unquote. But I'm not sure that the administration appreciated the strategic implications of the deal as well as the economic benefits of it. Um, you could argue over whether the TPP was a, quote-unquote, best deal that the United States could have gotten. Maybe we could have gotten more uh, market opening Uh, I don't know the answer to that. But strategically, uh, I think it was a blow to countries like Australia to have the United States bow out. Oh, definitely. Um, The the TPP was was critical to, um, as you say, binding together the the democracies in the region and the countries that uh, didn't want to become overly dependent on uh, trade with China. And it would have uh, extended supply chains among those countries um, and essentially, you know, bypass China in, in a lot of respects. So, um, you know, if, if, even if you're upset with China about, um, uh, you know, trade issues, TPP um, is, is actually a model deal. I mean, a lot of the things that the Trump administration is talking about trying to get in bilateral deals now with Canada and Japan are things that were in the TPP deal um, so it, it was it was a huge um, own own goal for the U.S. to to pull out of TPP. Well, we're unfortunately out of time today, so we'll leave it at that. Another gloomy note. Thanks for listening to Foreign Edition. On behalf of Hugo and myself, Mary Kissel, thanks for listening. I'll be back with you on Wednesday.